Boston Confidential, Bean Town's True Crime Podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail in Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. I want to get right to it today because we have a long interview. Today we're covering the Teresa Corley murder of 1978. So yes, we are going back in the time machine. 1978, the drinking age in Massachusetts, and I believe nationwide, was 18. And people still hitchhiked, and there were no cell phones. Forensic evidence collection was extremely lacking, just because they didn't know better. It would grow by leaps and bounds in the next decade or 20 years. But at that time, it was kind of primitive, at least as we'd see it today. If you see photos of Teresa Corley, who was 19 at the time, she was absolutely beautiful. And after talking to people who surrounded her, it becomes readily apparent that she was beautiful both inside and outside. She had a lot of friends. The family had just moved from Mattapan to Bellingham, Massachusetts, and they were in the process of, you know, kind of settling in. But they had made friends and they were members of the community. Teresa graduated from Bellingham High and was working at a jute factory, which is a factory that makes, you know, small items, handbags, stuff like that. And it was kind of an entry-level position, so a lot of kids worked there. So a lot of her social circle centered around working at this factory. On the evening of December 5th, 1978, Teresa Corley and a group of friends were celebrating a birthday party of one of Teresa's girlfriends, and they had started at a private residence, and then all the partygoers went to the train stop bar in Franklin. I believe it's relatively close to the center, but it's now defunct. But the party went there, and some drinking continued. But I'm going to stop my interpretation of this, and I'm going to give it to an expert. And that expert is Terry's sister, Jerry Hood. And she's a virtual encyclopedia on this case. So I'm going to let you hear it from the horse's mouth. And here's my interview with Jerry Hood. And I'll jump back in after our interview's over to close it out. All right, guys, here we go. Jerry Hood, welcome to Boston Confidential. Hi, thank you. Thanks for joining us today. I know this is a difficult subject, but something that needs to be done. We're discussing the murder of your sister in 1978, Teresa Corley in Bellingham. And I've explained to the listeners a little bit of what happened. I just, could you take us through the timeline and we'll go from there if that's all right with you? Sure. So it was 1978, as you said, Teresa was working at a factory penthouse sales. It was um, a jute factory. In Franklin, a lot of kids from Bellingham, Franklin, worked there, you know, putting themselves through school, some of them. 
Right. So it, that would be, they'd be making purses and purses, rugs, stuff like that. When, when people have penthouse, they have a whole different connotation to that factory, but no, it was a, it was a, a like a local factory. A lot of kids work there. A lot of kids work there. I think it was a big part of her social life even. And I, I recall my mother and I going to pick her up and she told us she was going to a party. Um, that night, my mother said, okay, don't be too late. And she went off on her way. The next morning, my mother got up. She's a single parent. She gets up around six o'clock and she realized that Teresa wasn't home. And immediately we all panicked. It was my, my mother, my brother and I were still at home. And immediately my mother was panicking because it was unlike Teresa not to call. You know, it, she always came home. We all, all came home or called. We immediately started calling friends to see if she was with them. Nobody had seen or heard of her. Um, my mother then called my older sisters who lived you know, out of town. Each one of them also started to a little bit of panicking. Um, they ended up coming to the house. We called the police to report her missing. Uh, and because she was 19, we were told, oh, she's a typical 19-year-old. She'll be back. Give it some time. But we weren't satisfied with that. We and My sisters and I, we started looking. We started going to where she'd been and tried to find out where she was. Long story short, a day had passed. We were, you know, of course, still in our panic-stricken mode. And then another day passed. And on the 8th, two officers came to our door. Two Bellingham police officers came to our door and said that, Teresa was found on the side of 495. I always say that the sound of my mother's screams will never go out of my head. She totally lost it. And this was a woman that had been through hell herself. And, you know, I always say it was the sound of a heartbreaking. Um, right. And we, we were all pretty much at that point devastated. And I even think myself at that point, I went to like into like a, Kind of like a trance, like numb. It's a numbing feeling. You were 17 at the time, correct? I was 17. Yeah. Um, and then to hear that she had been strangled. This is something that didn't happen in the little town of Bellingham. We were moved from Mattapan. You know, my mother moved us from Mattapan to find a more safe place to grow up. And, and then four years later, my sister's dead on the highway. And I hate to be graphic, but she was found naked. Yeah. With her clothes beside her, and she had been manually strangled with the literature, right? Correct? Right. So, when did the police start actually investigating or even looking for your sister? Probably wasn't until a good couple of days later. I think it was probably more or less on the 8th. And, you know, after the call, maybe went into, I don't like, I don't have that timeline. I was kind of young. I was kind of out of it. I don't know their exact timing of like when they started to look, I've asked for police reports. Right. I, and I think the report, you know, the report went in and then I think maybe they got serious about it around the sixth, maybe, but I'm assuming right after her body was found, it was like, Oh, okay. All right. So that was the timeline for your family, but you've developed one for Teresa specifically, correct? Right. So on December 5th, 1978, it was pretty cold out. She had left the factory after speaking to you and her mom. Right. 
and she was going to a party and the party was for her boyfriend, correct? The party started off like the kids get, I guess they, they gathered at an apartment initially within walking distance to the train stop. So the party was actually for a girl named Lisa. And, you know, it, it's like a group of friends that get together, but they were gathering at the train stop for Lisa's birthday party. Oh, Lisa's birthday. Okay. It was a girl named Lisa. It was her birthday and she was at the train stop. They had started drinking at the apartment prior to going over. And then I'm told that she was pretty drunk, that, you know, she was messed up drunk, to use a more mild word. Yeah. And she got into an argument with her boyfriend at the time. But there were several people that worked with her there. One of her supervisors from the work was there. there like, it, but it was a normal gathering place for them. You know, the train stop. It was 1978. Drinking age was 18, I think. And that's right. just where they went to let loose. So she has this argument over something relatively minor, but it, she's in that state and you're 19 and you storm off. But first she asked for a ride from her friend, correct? Right. She went to her friend, Alana, asked her for a ride home. Alana wasn't ready to leave yet. Told her, Let, let's you know, give it a little while. My sister, you know, being stubborn, we're all stubborn at it, at, you know, and she was known to hitchhike and she was also known to walk if she couldn't get a ride. So she left. Right. But she only had on a light jacket, a corduroy jacket and T-shirt and jeans. Right. Correct? That's correct. Yeah. Because she wasn't planning on being out in the freezing cold. She wasn't planning on walking. No. And so she begins walking towards uh, Franklin Center, correct? Right. Right. And she runs into three people while she's hitchhiking who are known to her. Either hitchhiking or walking. I'm not sure. I don't personally know how well she knew them, but one of the guys was from Bellingham. Okay. You know, and he recognized her walking. And she either got in asking for a ride home or they convinced her to go to a party in Franklin, correct? That's right. And that was at the Presidential Arms in Franklin, Mass. Right. And that's a, it's a pretty big complex. Right. So she gets there and... Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Sherry. It's just. No, it's I'm okay. I'm okay. Yeah. I've had 42 years of this. She gets there. And what I'm told by one of the guys in the apartment is that she realizes it's just guys and she wanted to leave. She started to panic. I think she did. And then he spun a tale that she went into a bedroom with one of the guys by the name of David and she came out and what she said to them, I'll have sex with all of you if you just let me go. Yeah. And in my conversation with that particular individual, he said he was so drunk that he would never be able to even get it up. And he did nothing to her. The guy that originally from Bellingham that wanted to pick her up, they threw him out of the apartment because he was saying things that he wanted to do to her sexually. And meanwhile, he was thrown out of the apartment and he was banging on the door to get back in. And so in my conversation with this individual, I said, did that really sound like a girl that wanted to be there? And he said, no. And then what he said to me is that he admitted that this guy, David Cohn, raped my sister. Right. Somehow she was able to get out of that apartment. I don't know. What, what the circumstances were. And then she was seen leaning on the guardrail. She was in a panic. She was in a panic. She, yeah. Put on 
one wrong shoe. It was right. similar to hers, right. but she put on a male shoe. That's right. She put on a shoe of hers and a shoe of one of the guys in the apartment. And somehow she gets out. Right. Whether or not they finally just said, okay, we'll, we'll let you go. I, I don't know the circumstances, but she was then seen leaning on a guardrail. I'm told that a guy going into Grelick Farms for work, you know, had picked her up, but he, you know, he dropped her at the gate and another truck driver coming out picked her up and dropped her at Bellingham Center, right outside the police station where the old police station was. Now, she told that truck driver who dropped her at in front of Bellingham Police that she had been raped. Right. He said she was a little bit incoherent at times, but she said that, and this is according to others' reports, that she had been sexually assaulted and that she was mad. She was very mad. I think he said she was on fire or words to that effect. Right, that she was incensed, you know, is is the impression I get. So I think the truck driver was under the impression that she'd go into the police station and get some assistance, but she never did go into the police station. That's what you believe now. That's what we believe now. So she somehow started walking from the police station towards home, correct? On towards 126? That's what they have been telling us, right? And that was basically the last time she was seen alive. Right. It took her from 5 a.m. to 5.30 to get to the Dairy Queen in Bellingham. And they did a roadblock a couple of days later, and people had said that they had seen a girl fitting her description walking along. And it was about 5.30 in the morning when she was last seen. Right. So... How quickly did the police come up with the suspects at the Franklin apartment? How quickly did that develop? I'd have to go back in my notes, but it was probably a couple of days after her body was found. There was a disturbance at the presidential arms. And one of the police officers that I spoke to said he went to the apartment and there were half a dozen guys and girls there. And he noticed kind of like a shoe out of place and said, whose shoe is that? And one of them said, oh, it must be Teresa's. She left it behind. I haven't been given the specifics of how they kind of put two and two together. But, you know, here's my sister missing. There was also a guy that from the apartment that went, well, this is probably how they discovered it. But there was a guy in the apartment that went to where Teresa's boyfriend lived frantically looking for somebody. And he told one of the girls that lived there that knew my sister that Teresa reached up and scratched him while she was orgasming. And then the boyfriend who also lived in the same apartment complex overheard this guy talking and overheard him talking about himself and two other guys in the apartment. And then he Kind of said he got out of there as quick as he could and went to his uncle, a Franklin police detective. So I think that's kind of when the pieces were kind of being put together. But they didn't treat that apartment in Franklin as a crime scene, correct? To the best of my knowledge, no. But this too, Barry, is we get the statement all the time. It's an open investigation. We can't give you specifics. We can't give you the information. Right. And I've reached out to Franklin, to Bellingham, just to try to get some of those specifics of how did you handle this case? 
and you don't get that. You know, you don't get that information. Right. I've asked for police reports. I've asked for police reports from that night. So I kind of want to highlight this part of the interview. I want you to take me through the day she was found on December 8th and what physically happened at the Bellingham police station, because this is amazing to me. So what we were told just from actually from side reports from like a local reporter was that a call went into the Bellingham police station to their private line is what I'm told. It wasn't the, you know, the line that you and I would use to call like for emergencies. I don't know if 911 was even developed back then, but but I'm told the call went to a private line at the Bellingham Police Station. And it was a man from Connecticut saying that he was heading home to Connecticut and pulled over to urinate. Or the other story is his car overheated. But anyway, he looks down into the gully and sees the body. Now, I'm told and from pictures that I've seen, there's this pretty steep hill in that area. And she was found among the tree line. Right. Um, so nobody can just casually see a body, especially kind of, it was a little dark at that time. Right. Or I'm assuming it was getting to be probably near dusk, four o'clock, maybe I'm saying. So um, as the dispatcher is now taking this information and dispatching somebody to the scene, a local man walks into the police station asking if that's Teresa Corley's body they found on the side of the road. This is absolutely amazing to me. And we don't know what the police did with this man or the information, right? I'm not right away. I don't know what they did. I know he was a local guy. I don't know if they were just kind of used to him kind of dropping in. But for him to just suddenly say, is that Teresa's body on the side of the road when a Connecticut person makes the call? Right. Dispatcher barely had time to send somebody there. He was walking in. Right. So the call comes in and this gentleman identifies himself as John Burlington from Connecticut, correct? That's right. And just a short time after this individual, and I'm going to name him, his name is Ronald Moore of Bellingham, correct? Right. He walks into the police station and asks, is that Teresa Corley up on 495? And the patrolman who were dispatched to make sure this was accurate had barely even arrived, if they had even arrived, right? That's my understanding, right. So in my view, this is the whole case. Right. And I would think they would have called a detective from the scene to come down and, while you're talking to him, apply for a warrant to at least search his car and maybe his home. I know it's not enough to arrest at that point, but that never happened, did it? So again... I have not had access to their police reports, so I don't know if they right away sent anybody to search his home or search his, he had a van. The van has come up a lot, that Teresa was in this van. I don't know what they did as far as or how many days it took them to really look at this guy as a suspect. Right. I'm told he wasn't considered a suspect till like two or three days later according to one of the Bellingham police officers that I've spoken to two or three days later. So his family owned a house across from their garage. That's where he lived. Right. I don't know if they picked Teresa up at 530 in the, you know, around five, between five and 530. Right. Because there is that gap of time. Right. Um, I don't know where she was taken. 
after she was last seen at the Dairy Queen. Oh my goodness. So I believe at some point his van was searched, but what I was told by one of the investigators, it had kind of been all stripped down. Unbelievable. I can't really fathom that. And again, we don't know. So I could be criticizing unjustly here, but I think that's the whole ball of wax here, or at least a part of it. And the Moore family was a pretty prominent family in town, and they had friends on the police department and probably in every department in town, correct? Probably even within, you know, within the town hall. They owned a little diner next door to the police station where the police would go have their coffee in the morning. It was not uncommon to be driving down 140 and seeing a cruiser at the Moore's garage, you know, on any given day. So this guy identifies himself as John Burlington, and the dispatcher takes it down in a red or during our conversations that he wrote it in the log in red. Right. He wrote, I guess, important stuff, what he felt was important in the logbook in red, like to make it stand out, I guess. Right. What happened to that log entry, Jerry? It went missing. They couldn't find it. They still can't find They can't find it. Okay. So the dispatcher has reportedly said that after the guy identifies himself as John Burlington and says there's a body on 495 North, Ronnie Moore comes in and the dispatcher kind of puts it together. That sounded like Ronnie Moore, correct? This is what I was told, that he thought that it was probably the same voice. Right. I'm told there were tapes too, though. I'm told that there were tapes of the voice. And the dispatcher was listening to the tapes. And again, I don't know where the tapes went. Right. It's just so confusing to me. I mean, you had this guy and the dispatcher says it's him. You know, throw some detectives in there to listen to those tapes and listen to the dispatcher. That's, I would think, is enough for a warrant to search his car, vehicle, and give him a pretty hearty interrogation. Well, the police officer I spoke to even as, you know, last night or or messaged with last night said, well, you need probable cause. (laughs) You need probable cause to arrest, but you don't need probable cause to search. But I think it's because the ties of that family were so strong in town. Right. That it wouldn't matter if he stood there in front of them and said, I did it. I firmly feel he was protected. We were outsiders. We weren't townies. To this day, we're not townies. I've lived in this town a long time. We're not townies. Yeah, you got to be born there, correct? Exactly. This is the type of town. It's just so difficult because it was all right there in front of them, I think. And the Mass State Police in 78 and today in 2021, they work with the local police on homicides because small towns like Bellingham, Milford, Medway, don't have enough experience handling murders. So it goes to the state police. Right. It's hard for me to fathom that the state police would accept this type of investigation from Jump Street. From what I'm hearing from back then, there was a struggle between the state and the town over this case. There was a struggle initially. Really? And when one of the cops used the word, the state came in and seized what we had on Teresa. Right. You know, and then he was a little bit miffed because the cop I talked to, I think he's a decent cop. He made it sound like maybe if Bellingham had been able to kind of keep hold of some of that information, 
the state police wouldn't have messed it up. So now I have like two different agencies back in the day kind of at each other. I think they were a little bit more cooperative now with each other. Right. But we've lost time here. No, precious time. And I know there was no DNA 1978. It wasn't even a thought, right? Right. So they interview these guys. When do they get on to those three guys and how aggressively do they investigate them for a potential rape? And now the person that runs from their apartment is dead. And it just doesn't seem to be an aggressive enough investigation for me concerning those three guys. Well, when it comes to the rape, my older sisters would push. What about the guys in the apartment? What about the guys in the apartment? But they were always like the afterthought. Right. It was like, well, they did what they did, but now the victim is dead. She's dead and she can't talk. She can't tell us she was raped. But she tells a truck driver she was assaulted. She can't talk because they murdered her. Correct, maybe, perhaps. But then seven years passed, right? Seven years passed. Statute of limitations in Massachusetts is seven years. But I have other people telling me, but the girl was murdered. And one of the guys left the state, I believe, prior to the statute of limitations being up. Right. And lo and behold, it's his DNA found on her genes. And he fought and refused several times. The other guys in the apartment gave over their DNA a little bit quicker. He put up a big wall. What year was the DNA battle? When did that start? It probably started in maybe 2015 when I started my battle, right? I have to say the investigators, they're on board. Any name I mentioned, they got a lot of DNA from a lot of individuals. They started traveling. Right. This guy refused, refused, refused. And I think he finally gave up his DNA in 2018-ish, I want to say. And it was a match. And maybe even 2019. And it was a match. To the semen on... To the degraded semen on her genes. Wow. This has gone on for so long. Witnesses have passed away. Suspects have passed away. And I think one of these three Jamokes has passed, or are they still with us? In the apartment, it was four guys. And it was the stepbrother of one of the guys I talked to. He died. Okay. So there was physically four guys in the apartment, one pounding on the door. Okay. And then you might ask, well, how do the guys in the apartment relate to Ronnie Moore? Well, they were all drug buddies. You know, and from like just my little timeline of familial looking at, you know, family connections, they seem to be cousins by marriage to the Arcans and Arcans and Moors are all interrelated as well, I believe, through marriages. Okay, Uh, that's something we didn't cover this Ronnie Moore who went into the police station with this information he should have never had was involved in the drug business, in the drug scene, both as a user and a seller, correct? Right. Okay. And he would go throughout the years to a restaurant that a lot of people in this area are familiar with, Pete's Bluebird, and he'd have a few drinks, right? Right. Or he was already high. (laughs) And he'd have some conversations about what happened. And he said, if I speak, this will all come undone. Is that what you've heard as well? That is what I was directly told by the bartender from Peaceful Bird that Ronnie went in, he he would start talking about my sister, 
And the bartender would try to encourage him to go say what he knew. And he said, if I talk, it'll all come undone. And I'm not sure what he was referring. You know, I don't know, undone for himself, undone for the Bellingham police. And uh, who who comes undone? I don't know. Right. So I'm going to go out on a limb here. John Burlington is Ronnie Moore. That is what's believed. And he had a little bit of humanity in him during this. And that's what he was doing at the police station. And afterwards, his conscience is bothering him. Hence, his conversations with the bartender. It's, it's haunting him, I think. Right. But you know, and the, but the other thing, though, too, Barry, and this is what I say, too. Did Ronnie kill her or did Ronnie just have the information? Did Ronnie know the guys in the apartment? Right. And, you know, was Ronnie maybe physically there when she was killed? Perhaps. Right. And I'm told that, you know, she wasn't dragged or she wasn't thrown from a vehicle. She was placed in that area and had to be more than one person. Right. And then I'm told by another individual, the reason why her body was found was because Ronnie liked my sister. Ronnie knew her somehow. Right. There was some humanity in Correct. him. Correct. They wanted her to be found. Right. That's why I, I say that he's the key to all this. And unfortunately, he died in what year? Oh, God, I want to say 2008. Yeah. And he died by overdose. Right. He was found dead. In Florida. In Florida. And he was the opportunity here. And I think he was the opportunity all the way through. But I think he was also somehow protected. Right. Because of who his family was. I don't think the state police would have protected him, but the local police, maybe they just didn't believe it, but it they did not conduct a good investigation on this. And I'm going to say more about this on another time, but this investigation has to be one of the worst I've ever seen in my life. My family has felt that way from the beginning. My mother gave up. My mother, well, she never gave up on Teresa. She never gave up on wanting justice. But early on, she told us they're Keystone Cops. What she was told by the state and even the FBI was in on Teresa's case because she was found on the highway. I mean, they were trying to link her, I believe, to the New Bedford murders, right? So there were a lot of bodies found along the highways in Massachusetts. So they were looking for links. But from the beginning, my mother was told that the local police allowed that crime scene, too many people, onto the area. Right. And the crime scene at the Franklin apartment, that would have been the home run because right. if there was DNA in her genes and on her and other places, there would have likely been some on the sheets. You know, these goofballs didn't have it in them to clean up, you know? Right. Well, and nobody knew about DNA back then, right? So it was just emerging in a way like. Right. I think you could get uh, at the time, though, you could get blood type from semen. Right. Yeah. Right. So. You could have narrowed it down and saved it. And some of this evidence, Jerry, was saved and put between glass slides and archived. Right. Can you tell us what happened with that? They did vaginal swabs, you know, back in the day. They did vaginal swabs. They, you know, preserved them. But what happened was is the state was not very careful in the way they preserved evidence. In speaking with police officers back in the day, they would go to 1010 Commonwealth Avenue. And what one of them said is, was it was mayhem. You'd have things from all these cases just thrown about, right? And then 
the vaginal swabs were actually, when I inquired, well, where are the vaginal swabs? What happened? Well, they were destroyed in a fire that became a flood. And when I asked like the state archivist, when was this fire? You know, there's nothing, nothing in like the state archives about a fire. And then when I pushed further with, at the time around 2015, I was told there was a fire at the old mortuary. And then that's where they stored all these slides and, you know, from cases. And that when they went in, the place was a mess. There was nothing to be retrieved, you know. The Norfolk DA, they told me they physically went to the old mortuary and saw the aftermath. Yeah. What they should have done is try to take anything from the case that they could, because who knows how advanced we'll get in DNA, you know? Right. Or even treat that scene as a crime scene. You know what I mean? Like that. Yeah. This They had like, it wasn't just my sister's case, right? How many cases, you know? Jerry, your family got together a reward. Is that still active? No, the reward isn't active. Okay. I took it down because, you know, I've had, I had different people telling me that mainly it probably wasn't enough money. $25,000 isn't enough. Nobody came forward initially. And a lot of the, that 25000 was going to be coming from me personally. Right. We did do a fundraiser to exhume Teresa, which right. I hate GoFundMe's. I'm just putting that out there. Don't believe in them. But a, a woman, local woman said, no, that we got to do this. We got to exhume her. We got to get her nails. And so right. I went for, I don't like GoFundMe. That raised a little bit of money, not much. But right. what happened was they did exhume her because I pushed and pushed because I was trying to raise funds to get the pathologist on board, my own private company to do the work that the state I was hoping. And they, the state finally said, we'll do it. We had to dig up the body. We had to pay for that. They do the exam. But they did the exam. There's still money sitting in a bank account right now from that GoFundMe. Yeah. And what I do is every year I make a donation to the loaves and fishes in her name. Right. And I've asked people, what what should I do with this money? Do people want the money back? And they don't want it. You know, they. No, of course not. You know. Yeah. But I hate having it. <laughs> you know, so I try to do kind of some good with it. And there was some hope that turned, again, tragic. There was a report that there was new DNA, but that was found not to be useful for us, correct? That's right. Well, between December 4th to December 8th of my life every year, I can't handle anything really about my sister. But on December 7th, the Norfolk DA called again to say they had some unfortunate news that they were able to get a sample off of the button and the zipper of the jeans. And they went to great lengths, I have to say, to identify the source of the DNA. There was nothing in CODIS that matched this. They actually got in a genetic detective. Right. C.C. Moore worked on this sample. And unfortunately, it came back as one of the earlier investigators. Right. So he must have just touched it in passing right. and, and, and that's how it turned out. And then I'm told, you know, of course, this day and age, they treat the forensic evidence much better than they did back then. Right. And we think there still may be a little bit more DNA or other evidence to be examined. We're just waiting for a little bit more advancement in the DNA process. Is that right? Well, they're waiting to regroup. What I was told is they're going to regroup, discuss things. What's our next step? They assure me 
they haven't given up on this case. They assure me they're going to look wherever they can to maybe, you know, speak to the lab, speak to chemists, you know, and decide which step they're going to take next. I think the best hope for this case is DNA. So I'm praying for that. Them too. Unless there's a deathbed confession. And I mean, it's been 40 some odd years and you've been going back and forth with the DA's office and you had asked them to give this case to the state police unresolved unit. It's basically the state police cold case unit. Is that right? Right. You just want some fresh eyes on this. Right. You know, and I have to say there's always fresh eyes. And unfortunately, what happens, as we know, is the detectives move on. They get promoted. They move on. They move out of these offices. New ADAs get assigned. So I've been assured that I've had fresh eyes. But my whole reasoning to have the unresolved unit look at it is because when that unit was being formed, I was actually personally called by former Colonel Gilpin. And she mentioned to me that this is a unit that will help cases like ours. Her sister was murdered. Right. And it was my assumption that my sister's case would go to that unit. And it's not to insult the Norfolk County DA. You know, I've gotten fresh eyes with, I have a the, the trooper on, on the case now. He's a genuinely decent person. You know, I get a, a good feel from him, but I'm, I'm thinking their, their resources are limited. Right. And the unresolved unit, the cold case unit, are trained in cold cases. They're the experts, in my opinion, from the state police. And it's not a new set of eyes. It's many eyes now, many new sets of eyes of investigators that have done this type of work all the time. And not to minimize the trooper I have now. I firmly believe he's a hard worker. Yeah. I have nothing at all bad to say about him. And I don't have anything bad to say about the ADA. They're trying. Um, But I don't think there's any harm in wanting help, wanting some outside help. Right. They're trained in cold cases and there's different procedures and protocols. So, And maybe they'll be able to get a little bit more aggressive with some of these players in this, you know? Right. That's long overdue. Right. Go knocking on the doors again. Right. It's crazy how they let the, they didn't let it, but the years had gone by and now people fill in what they don't know with rumor and conjecture. Right. And that's human nature. But I think from the beginning, this Ronnie Moore was the key. But even with all the rumor and conjecture, all the same names keep emerging. Right. Somebody might add a little twist, but all the same names keep emerging from this. Yeah. There's a handful of people out there and there's a conspiracy of silence on this case. Yeah. So I hope somebody can have a come to Jesus moment and say, listen, my life is getting short and I've got something to say. Yeah. But, but, you know, Barry, I, I got to tell you, you know what they always say, you know, or I've been told there is justice on the other side for her. You know, these yeah. people are getting, you know, and, and what I have found too, a lot of them are dying fairly young. Right. You know, Ronnie died young and some of them in their 60s, you know, you live that hard life in your youth, you're going to pay and, you know, you're not going to Jesus, I I believe at that point. Yeah. And the hard living catches up with you as it did with Mr. Moore. Yeah. All right, Jerry, I want to thank you for being on the show today. And if there's any new developments, will you come back on with us? Oh, sure. Well, yeah. Okay. Thanks, Sherry. Okay.
All right, guys, that concludes our interview, but I'd just like a little feedback on this one. If you can, get back to me at barry at bostonconfidential.net and let me know, was this the worst police investigation you've ever heard about? I mean, there's several crime scenes, at least two, right? One where she was raped. It doesn't seem that it was ever forensically examined. And the next one, wherever she was killed, we don't know. And the dump site on 495. So I'm assuming that the dump site was forensically examined, but the other two weren't, and that's the home run. And this Ronnie Moore walking into the police station asking if it was Teresa Corley they found on the highway before that information was released. I don't know how he got to walk out of that police station. I think that was enough for at least a search warrant or some intense questioning. I don't know what happened in this case. I think I'm going to do a second episode on this, and we'll go over the police investigation end of it. But I want to take the opportunity to thank Jerry Hood for taking the time to speak with me. It can't be easy. She says she's been doing it for 40 years, but asking her some of those questions was difficult for me. But she was very generous with her time. We believe there's still more DNA to be tested in this case, and we're hopeful that going forward the case can be solved. And if you have any information, please call the Norfolk District Attorney's Office, 781-830-4990. That's 781-830-4990. Let's end this conspiracy of silence in Bellingham. All right, guys, I'm going to leave you here, and I'm going to be on to the next one. I think I'm going to do a second episode on this case. I think it's that important. I think it's solvable. So let me know what you think. Give me an email at barry at bostonconfidential.net. All right, guys, talk to you next week.